the Horse and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. This week, I'll be talking to our news team about increasing diversity in equestrianism, as well as about racing's restart behind closed doors as we slowly move out of the coronavirus lockdown. Also this week, Polly Bryan, Horse and Hound's dressage editor, talks to Natasha Baker, one of Britain's most successful Paralympians. With 11 gold medals to her name, Natasha reminisces on her amazing career to date and tells us exactly what it means to represent your country at the Paralympics. When I was 10 years old, I dreamt that I would be able to go to a Paralympics one day and win a gold medal. And so to have achieved that 12 years later in London, that was just an absolute dream come true. Finally, vet Ricky Farr of Farr and Percy Equine talks about lameness and why technology can help us with diagnosis but must be used as a backup for an experienced eye. When it comes to lameness, everyone has that sinking feeling. Is this going to cost me an absolute fortune? Is my horse going to get better? Am I going to be able to go out and compete? Owners want that answer definitively, what's going on? More from vet Ricky Farr in a bit. So pop your feet in the stirrups and let's get started. I'm here with Horse and Hounds news editor Eleanor Jones and senior news writer Lucy Elder to look at this week's big stories. Morning. Hello. Morning. This week, Eleanor has been working on a story looking at what is being done to increase diversity in equestrianism. Eleanor, you said that one of your most interesting interviewees was Imran Acha. Can you tell us who he is and what you discussed with him? Yeah, so he runs the St. James City Farm Riding School in Gloucester and his aim was, he he's told us before that he struggled in getting into riding when he was younger and he wanted to give that opportunity to as many people as possible. And he said that, uh, especially recently during lockdown, he's been riding around the city roads a bit more because they've been quieter. And he said he gets approached by black and Asian people who have said, well, I, I didn't think black people or Asian people could ride. And then a lot of them have said, can I try or can my children try? And he, he says there's almost a, a mindset that this isn't a thing we can do. And that's something that needs to change. And a factor which came through really strongly is that it's important for potential riders from underrepresented ethnic backgrounds to have role models. And Imran mentioned Khadija Mella specifically. Yeah, so she, at the age of 18 last August, won the Magnolia Cup at Goodwood, the charity race, and was the first person to ride in a race in Britain wearing a hijab. Three months earlier, she hadn't even sat on a racehorse, and her riding experience came from Ebony Horse Club in Brixton, which is a riding school like St. James that aims to make riding accessible to people who may not otherwise have had the chance. And what Imran was saying was, you know, for people from underrepresented communities who may not have heard of Carl Hester or A.P. McCoy, they've heard of her and that gives them a role model. And an amazing story there that she not only raced in that race, but but won it. So really someone for people to look up to. Yeah. And there's a British equestrian initiative around diversity, which was set up last autumn, the Equality Engagement Group. Can you tell us what that is setting out to achieve? Yeah, so they, and and it's a shame because they had their first meeting last autumn and then they had arranged to meet this spring, but then obviously the virus happened and so this second meeting hasn't happened. And what the BEF says they want this group to do is, and I quote, help us provide equal opportunities for all to take part in equestrian sport and to make what we do more accessible. I spoke to Anna Hall, who's the head of participation, and what she's very keen to stress is that this isn't the BEF going, this is what we think needs to be done. It's 
them talking to people and saying, what do you think needs to be done and how can we help you do that? Mm. Which is brilliant. And what else are riders and groups doing to address the issue? So I spoke to Reese McCook, who has um, launched a Ride Out Racism campaign. And he, he, he wants to get people talking and he wants to raise awareness. And he told me he has been subject to direct racist abuse. And he all, that was almost enough to put him off riding. But thanks to the support he had from his family and friends, he kept going. And he now wants to support other people in a similar situation and really do everything he can to make sure that our sport isn't discriminatory. Thank you, Eleanor. It's really interesting to hear about those initiatives. This is such an important story, and we'll definitely be writing more on this in the future, and Horse and Hound will be trying to be part of increasing diversity in the horse world. Lucy, we're back with coronavirus with you this week and talking about racing returning. It's been more than two weeks now since sport resumed behind closed doors. Has it been going smoothly? In in a word, yes, which is great news. British racing returned on the 1st of June and the first fixture was an all-weather meeting up at Newcastle. But since then, we've had flat meetings at courses across the country. We've had the Guineas um, and now we're recording this just as Royal Ascot is is about to start. So, yeah, on the whole, it's been going smoothly. Uh, British horse racing told me there's a few things that have needed ironing out. Also, with the eyes of the country fixed on them, so to speak, as one of the very first sports to restart it, it has gone well and that is really impressive you know you're so under the spotlight particularly at the moment that it has gone well and that is a huge credit to everyone involved as you say lucy the fact that it's going smoothly is not down to chance it's the result of a lot of hard work by the british horse rating authority and the race courses as well as trainers jockeys and stable staff can you tell us about some of the measures that are being taken to, to make everything go well yes absolutely to sort of sum up i wanted to to look at those uh, because firstly, it's fascinating to see how all those different areas of the industry have come together to make it work. And because I've been writing and talking a lot recently about how other equestrian disciplines are looking to return. And while it's a different situation for them, I wanted to find out if there's anything there that could help them too. So in terms of logistical changes uh, on race courses there's things such as one-way systems uh, to mark spots in the paddock uh, masks there's individual cubicles now for jockeys to get changed in uh, there's also compulsory online education and questionnaires for anyone that's that has to be there on the race on race day um, there's temperature checks on entry and I spoke to three jockeys this week, actually, um, Megan Nichols, George Wood and Daniel Muscat, who have all been really busy since racing restarted. They couldn't praise those involved in getting the sport back on highly enough, particularly, which I thought was interesting, how good communications have been. And that's something I thought was quite interesting um, and could cover lots of different sports. Uh, In the article, I also go into what it's like to ride in a mask which again, they were all very much in favour of. And I was also found it quite interesting how it feels different depending on the weather and the climate conditions on the track that day. Um, and there were also some really interesting, like tiny practical things, such as uh, at the start of races, when horses are being loaded into, into starting stalls, um, all the jockeys are told to keep facing forwards. Whereas previously, they'd be turning around to see how many horses are left to load. But because that's one of the areas where, um, where racing identified that it's it's less risk if everyone's facing the same way. So now the stall handlers are calling out, you know, four to load, three to load, two to load, which is so simple, but actually really, really useful. 
Mm, that's a really interesting little detail and so interesting also to hear about riding in a mask there. I wore a mask yesterday for the first time just to go into a shop and, and then walked home in it just as a bit of a trial and it, it, it does feel like it's impeding your breathing a bit. So uh, I don't know whether they have to work on their fitness or anything and that's something that's uh, that's been a factor for them. Obviously, they're incredibly fit anyway. And aside from the measures taken on race days to keep everyone safe, there have been adjustments in communication, not only from the race courses, but between trainers and jockeys across to owners who can't currently attend the races, haven't they, Lucy? Yes, that's really true as well. And I thought this was also something interesting and hopefully useful for anyone looking to racing from other sports and other equestrian sports as well. Particularly um, when I spoke to Daniel, he told me about how um, simple technology is being quite useful. He said he's been giving updates using video as well as as voice notes as well, which I know quite a lot of us use on, on WhatsApp. And he said that that's something he's written abroad quite a lot. And it's something that he's been used to doing quite often in Australia and uh, said it's a really useful way of keeping owners really involved. And particularly when there's a lot of them, if there's a syndicate with quite a lot of owners, he really stressed that how at the moment it is really important to go that extra mile when they really can't be there. And they have been so supportive in keeping horses in training again, whichever discipline you're thinking of through lockdown. And he also said how he thinks that using technology in that sort of way, you know, using your phone or voice notes or short video clips and things like that is something that he could see happening and be a real benefit to the sport after long after we come out of this behind closed doors period. Yeah, I can really see that, that, you know, if you're one owner, you can maybe have a phone conversation with a jockey. But if there's a massive syndicate, it's not realistic to expect a jockey to speak to all of them. But to receive a voice note might feel a bit more personal than a written message. You know, if you can really hear the jockey's enthusiasm for how your horse has gone or how he's progressing, that would be a really, really great thing as an owner. Absolutely. Yes. And sort of before and after races as well. And yeah, it just adds that bit extra, really, isn't it? Yeah, that's great to hear. Thank you, Lucy. That's fascinating. And thank you again, Eleanor. Thank you. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this week's guest interview. I'm Polly Bryan, Horse and Hounds Dressage Editor, and I'm here virtually, of course, with Natasha Baker, who is one of Britain's most successful Paralympians. After contracting transverse myelitis at just 14 months old, Natasha was left with permanent nerve damage, loss of balance and severe weakness in her legs. However, this has not stopped her going on to win an incredible 11 gold medals, including double individual gold at London 2012 and triple gold at Rio 2016 with Cabral. Hi, Natasha, and welcome to the Horse and Town podcast. How are you? Hi, Polly. I'm great, thanks. How are you? Excellent, thank you. Let's start off by hearing just a little bit about how you and your team have been coping in lockdown. How have the past three months been for you? Um, it's been interesting. Um, it, it's been quite nice to have a little bit of downtime. Obviously, you know, when you're preparing for such big competitions, the pressure's on all of the time. So it has been quite nice to press the pause button a little bit and kind of recuperate and just have some fun with our horses, really. I haven't had any training because obviously Lisa um, Hopkins, my trainer, hasn't been able to get to the yard. Um, so I've been doing lots of pole work and some hacking around the fields and, and just generally enjoying my horses. That sounds really lovely. Obviously, you've been working hard towards selection for the Tokyo Paralympics this year. This has now shifted forwards to 2021. This will be your third Paralympics. How, what are your feelings about being a Paralympian? What does that mean to you? 
Oh, it means an awful lot. I mean, when I was 10 years old, I dreamt that I would be able to go to a Paralympics one day and win a gold medal. And so to have achieved that 12 years later in London, that was just an absolute dream come true. And it made it so special, obviously, being in London and, you know, being a London girl. Um, So yeah, to, to be able to represent my country, it's so, so special. And I just love every moment of it, but not just the competition side, the training side, you know, just working with our horses every day that's just so special oh it really really is we have a feature in this week's issue looking at the rise of para dressage through the years and I spoke to a number of your teammates for this feature including Sir Lee Pearson and Anne Dunham who had really fascinating insight into how the sport has changed what would you say has been the most significant transformation within para dressage since you began your career I think the development of the sport has been incredible. I mean, as I said, I got into it when I was 10 years old and there was like no gold, silver, bronze. I was basically straight up against Nick Tustain, who was the Paralympic champion, world champion, European champion. And so that could be quite daunting as a 10 year old. You know, I I used to go into the test thinking, oh, okay, you know, if I'm 15% behind, then I've done quite well. Um, So, uh, so yeah, to, to see the progression of the sport and to see so many grassroots riders come up um, and then become Paralympic champions or or to be put onto the world-class team. It's really, really amazing. And of course, last year was an important year for British para dressage with three team newbies on the team at the European Championships that came home with the team silver. And although you weren't riding there, that must have been amazing to to witness and, and to see within the sport. Definitely. I think since Rio, um, between London and Rio, we saw a lot of the the same faces and obviously mine was one of them. So it's really (laughs) lovely to see some new people gain experience. And that I think is so, so important. You know, I got away into the team in, in 2011 because Lee basically broke his back and so you know there was a kind of a a slot in and so it's been really nice since 2017 2018 and 2019 to see so many fresh faces on the championship teams to see so many new horses come up and win medals um and so the fact that like you said they they came home having won a team silver medal and I was so lucky because I was there uh, commentating so I got kind of ringside seats and got to enjoy all of the excitement but I think you know the the sport of para dressage really has developed and especially in other countries like we were so dominant from for such a long time you know we were unbeaten since 1996 and now to see other countries you know snapping at our heels Although it's not so great for Team GB because we want to be on top, but it is great for the sport to see so much amazing competition. Absolutely. In that same feature, Sophie Wells speaks about a positive change in attitudes towards disability over the past 10 years, both within the equestrian world and more generally. Is that something you'd agree with? Is that something you've seen and witnessed as well? 
I think London 2012 was such a big catalyst for people changing their perception of disability. And I think it was the first time that actually people saw disability on TV in such a positive light. Um, I think people are less scared now of asking about uh, the struggles that people can have. And I think it's seen so much more now as a normal way of life, which of course it is. Um, I think there was such a stigma before that people didn't want to offend people with disabilities by asking about them. And I think Channel 4 did such an amazing job of really changing that around and giving Paralympians the superhero kind of term and, you know, superhuman, wasn't it? Sorry, it's not superhero, superhuman. And, you know, that was such such an amazing term for people with disabilities that are still going out there and achieving their goals and I don't think that's necessarily just Paralympians it's basically anybody with a disability that is just challenging perceptions. I really hope so it's come a really long way and it's so great to see. Uh, In another of our paradressage features this week, you explain the complexities behind finding the perfect power horse. Can you tell us a little bit about your current top horse, Keystone Dawn Chorus, a.k.a. Lottie, and the moment that you knew that she was the one for you? Yeah, so uh, I was very lucky. I found Lottie quite quickly. I consider the fact that you have to pretty much put a year aside to find the right para horse because you know sometimes you can be incredibly lucky and sometimes it's the first one um you know you've got to have that spark you've got to have that instant connection and so it's kind of like I guess tinder for horses going to try (laughs) try all of them um and I love a bit of horse shopping um but I put an advert out actually on my Facebook page and kind of put my shopping list of the the things that I wanted in the perfect horse and uh, a friend of mine Beth Bainbridge actually got in contact and said I think my horse would be perfect for you she's not actually on the market Um, I wouldn't sell her but if you were interested then I would sell her to you because I know she would have an amazing home and hopefully go on and achieve amazing things and as soon as I sat on her I thought I think I found it. And yeah, it it was that instant connection. I just knew that she had the most amazing temperament. Um, She obviously had the the paces. Um, She got the most incredible walk, a huge over track. Um, But yeah, she, she has just been absolutely perfect for me. And I am so grateful to Beth because, you know, she she's been so generous in giving us the opportunity to buy her. And how does Lottie compare to your legendary Paralympic medalist Cabral? <laughs> She's quite different. Um, Is she? Yeah, she looks very similar. She looks like the female version of JP, um, but she's incredibly brave. And for those that knew JP, he really wasn't. Um, he was quite a sharp, sensitive. Um, somewhat spooky horse. Lottie is very different, luckily, in that way. Um, You know, she's so brave and I feel like I can take her probably into a war zone and she wouldn't bat an eyelid. Um, So from that aspect, she she is amazing. And how has she adapted to uh, your aids while riding? Because you don't have use of your legs while riding, do you? 
I don't know. And she she picked up on it really well. And again, this is where Beth was just so good. And she asked me what I needed and how I rode. And so for the couple of weeks before I actually went to go and see Lottie, Beth pretty much stopped using her leg and used a lot more voice. Uh, and so by the time I actually got down to see her, there wasn't actually too much work to do. Um, and because of her temperament, she was fine with, you know, my legs flapping around and me being not very elegant getting on. <laughs> um, <laughs> the whole process really hasn't taken that long at all. Because you've been very successful with her already, haven't you, in the last year? You've had a lot of big wins with her. Yeah, she she's gone above and beyond anything that I could have imagined that we would have achieved in our first year together. Um, so I started because I didn't want the pressure of going out immediately and doing para competitions. I decided to go and do some able-bodied stuff, um, which has been really, really fun. Um, and so I ended up at the Nationals. So I was just kind of there thinking, oh, you know, I'm here for the picture, really. I just want the picture <laughs> of me, you know, doing the novice class. It was my first ever able-bodied national class. And uh, so I was I was hoping for, you know, on a good day, a top 10 maybe, you know, place. And yeah. I was in the first third, I would say, of the class. And I came out with the top position and got, I think it was 72 point something percent and held that right to the last rider that came in and beat me, I think by one mark. So to be second at my first ever national championships um, in an able-bodied class, I was just completely blown away. But yeah, she was amazing. And then after the nationals, I then had to start thinking about para, which kind of put me back about a month with practicing pirouettes and all the all the para stuff and then went and started my first international with her at Kiso in October and had an three amazing competition days and won all three days of competition which again never imagined that that would happen at our first international with some really really good percentages so yeah I had a pretty epic 2019. You really really did and of course you're very well known for your para dressage medals um, but you've also been forging out a very successful career in presenting and commentary for the past few years haven't you? Tell yeah. us a little bit about how that came about in the first place and how you weave that into your riding career. So in 2017, that was the year that we lost JP. We lost him in the February, um, which was just totally heartbreaking. And that hit me quite hard. And I knew that I wasn't going to be contending for the European team that year. And I just happened to mention something to my agent who is not horsey in any way. And I said to him, oh, you know, what about us looking for a job for me at the Europeans like how about commentating I, I love talking if you mm-hmm. haven't guessed and uh, and I you know obviously have a fair amount of experience now in para dressage you know it'd be awesome to be able to put that into practice and so he got in touch with the FEI who put us in touch with FEI TV and then I think it was maybe even a week before the teams were flying out to the European Championships, I got the call up and said, yep, 
you're you're on you're going to be part of the FEI commentating team and I was like awesome so it was very very strange not packing my white britches and it was great actually to be able to watch the competition from a very different perspective so yeah I, I really love it and it's kind of like a mini horsey holiday for a couple of days and I get to travel all over Europe and and the world and kind of combining my love of horses and dressage and my love of chatting it's the perfect job for me. It certainly sounds it. <laughs> and finally, just tell us a little bit about your plans now looking ahead to uh, hopefully Tokyo 2021. Um, yeah. Obviously, you'll be working towards selection for that team. What are your plans? Yeah, so uh, all of my plans for 2020 are going to be rolled out to 2021. Uh, So I plan on doing a couple of abroad internationals. That's one thing that Lottie hasn't done. She's never been abroad. She was bred in the UK. So that's going to be quite an important thing for us to go and do some um, internationals in maybe Belgium or France Um, and then go through the selection criteria. So doing the national qualifiers, uh, the national championships, and then our final selection will be at Hartbury next year so you know just go basically and do my best I mean my other half put a bit of a a spanner in the works in January and proposed to me so uh, which is amazing yeah it's it's really really cool thank you um so yeah I'm currently spending this time wedding planning and then I'm hoping that I can concentrate all of my efforts next year into um, Tokyo and uh, yeah so my years have basically swapped around but that's cool. (laughs) Oh wonderful well best of luck with your Tokyo campaign congratulations again on your engagement and thank you so much for joining us on the Horse and Hound podcast it's been brilliant. Thank you so much Polly. So now we go over to vet Ricky Farr, who is going to talk to us about lameness, which is, as he says, something that every horse owner will have to deal with at some stage. So from Farr and Percy Equine, here's Ricky Farr. So in this episode, I just wanted to cover lameness, basically. Um, Lameness is definitely one of those things that everyone has encountered. If you've got a horse, your horse will be lame at some point. When it comes to lameness, everyone has that sinking feeling. A, is this going to cost me an absolute fortune? Is my horse going to get better? Am I going to be able to go out and compete? People require answers a lot faster. It's very much like, again, on the human side, you go to the hospital, you like an MRI, you like a CT, you like your blood stain, you, you, you like the answers really, really quickly. And we're finding that is definitely the case with our equine patients. Owners want that answer definitively, what's going on? Is my horse lame? think you need to a consider what you define and mean by the term lameness there's a lot of question within the veterinary literature with regards to how to define lameness Um, some describe it more as a continuum rather than my horse is lame or not lame you have to consider it with regards to breed age the type of work done the level of expectation as well however when it comes to lameness there's nothing better than the human eye Your vet probably has spent years not only training, but then assessing lameness and seeing lameness day in, day out, picking up subtle lamenesses. However, we're all very aware that a lot of people say, my horse isn't lame, it's just not right. This is where there is the potential to utilise a little bit more technology along with the experienced eye 
to assess whether that horse has an issue or not. Within the industry at the moment, there are a lot of inertial gait analysis systems that are coming onto the market that are being used, not only in referral centers, but in general practice as well. We have one within our own practice and we find it incredibly beneficial. But I think the key is that a lot of people become reliant upon gait analysis systems, or there is the temptation to become reliant on on gait analysis systems, which is poor, really poor. It has to be used in conjunction with a good clinical exam. You almost use it as a, a backup for your eye. Am I genuinely seeing that subtle intermittent one-tenth lameness or not? The sensors are also saying that there is a subtle lameness there. It gives you that confidence in that, yes, there is definitely something wrong. I think when when it comes to these as well, you, you need to consider what's called threshold levels as well. Um, with most of the systems that are out there, there's um, a, a lot of people that have developed using data a certain type of threshold. So with our system, again, the thresholds for a forelimb lameness are between six and seven mil and a hind limb lameness about three mil. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that the gyroscopes and accelerometers that we fit onto these horses are measuring the height or the amount of distance that a head moves from the highest point all of the highest points and all of the lowest points and the differences between those those points as well in addition exactly the same on the hind limb there are gait analysis systems out there that also encompass sensors on the back and the withers as well it's an ever emerging technology don't get completely reliant on it however don't dismiss it at the same point we have found it incredibly beneficial in some of our patients but there is some disagreement within the veterinary profession of whether gait analysis systems should be used at all but I think they have their place definitely so if you do have those kind of my horse isn't lame it's just not quite right do consider out there ask your veterinary practice do they have a gait analysis system that in conjunction with everything else might give you the scope to progress and move on and even referral centers have these to move on and pick up those subtle lamenesses and actually do something about them before they become problematic, which is what we used to do. We used to say, work your horse till it's a little bit lamer, then we'll come out and start blocking it. Well, actually, we don't necessarily have to do that now. A lot of those lameness systems allow us to pick them up nice and early, which from a preventative point of view is even better. It's going to save you a fortune potentially. So they are out there. Ask your veterinary practice about it. If not, get in touch with the referral center. The vast majority of them have the gait analysis systems and they have the staff that are trained a to use them in conjunction with good clinical exams big thanks to ricky for all his advice there well that's all we've got time for today we'll be back next week on the horse and hab podcast with all the latest news another interview and ricky will offer more of his brilliant advice this time focusing on common healthcare mistakes thanks for listening and talk to you next week The Horse and Ham Podcast is a Media Cage production.